If you have your copies, a copy, <laughs> easy for me to say, copy of God's Word, I'd ask you to turn to actually Acts chapter 20. We're going to look at Acts chapter 20 first. Yes, I know the, the outline says something else, but Acts chapter 20, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit because I am going to kind of talk to you a little bit about the context of this book, 1 Timothy. Um, I know the outline's blank, and that's my fault because I just didn't get the, the points and everything in time, but First um, Timothy is a letter from Paul. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. We met Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, a few weeks ago. He pastors, or at this point in time, he pastors, he doesn't pastor anymore. He pastored Ephesus Church, the church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. And this is after, this book is written after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Um, and we'll talk some more about that in terms of the context. But I strongly believe that Paul was in prison, and he wrote a lot of letters from prison, Philippians and some others, Philemon. But then he was released. And, and Luke records that in Acts chapter 28. He was, he was put on house arrest for a couple of years, taught and everything. But it's believed by most scholars that he was even released from that, and he got to go out and do mission work again. And at, at, in the course of that, he writes this letter to Timothy. This first one. The second letter to Timothy is written from the Roman prison again, right before Paul's execution. But that's, uh, that'll come later in the year. But anyway, he did more mission trips. But I think this, this letter to Timothy is best understood because it's to Timothy, who's pastor of Ephesus. By reading this address in chapter 20 of Acts, Paul is, Paul is addressing the elders of the church. He's called them down to a different town, not in Ephesus, because he wanted to, to address just these elders, these leaders in the church, for some very uh, specific things. And so I'm going to start with verse 18 and uh, read through verse 35. And I want you to listen to some of the, the context that's in here for why he's writing to, for, to Timothy. When they came to him, he said to them, You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all hum humility and with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, Compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are awaiting for me there. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped 
warning each of you with tears. And now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul kind of gives them a, a, a good warning and reminder of what he did for them. That's Acts chapter 20, and he is telling them, he's reminding them, I'm going, he knows he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. And he is. He's arrested, he's carried to the Romans, the Romans won't do anything, he's carried to the Jews, and the Jews can't do anything. He appeals to Caesar, and off to Caesar he goes eventually. He spent two or three years just in Palestine area waiting to go to Caesar. Finally gets there, gets put in prison, appeals to Caesar, makes a case, and isn't killed and eventually released and that brings us to first timothy paul writes to help timothy help timothy and the church to combat the wolves that's why the title of today's message is fight off the wolves fight off the wolves the predators and he wrote this to help them combat that this letter for timothy and the church is for, for, is for Timothy and, and the church that Timothy leads. And it will be read to the whole church. It's not a super personal letter. It's not like a private letter that, that uh, you might think of. This is a letter written to Timothy, but Paul knows it will be read, and he wants it to be read, actually, to the church. Paul is speaking to all of them who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, which is one of the things he's going to warn them about. There is people inside the church walls that claim to know Jesus Christ. And he's going to speak to them as if they do, even if they don't. Because that's the way he applies the, the law and the convictions that's here. That's his perspective on it. So he's heard some things. He knows what's going on in Ephesus, and he writes this letter. So we're going to, look at, we're going to walk through this book together. This morning we're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So... You follow along, it's going to be on the screen as I read this passage to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, 
which was entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, it is such a, a blunt opening to a letter. Help us, Father, to understand the context and why it is written the way it is and apply it to our own hearts this morning. Show us how we as a church can fight off the wolves. We praise you and thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is writing, like I said, to Timothy to remind him of the deceptive danger of false doctrine and self-promoted teachers. And that's what's going on. And, and that's why right out of the gate, Paul starts addressing that here. And so the sermon idea this morning from this passage is that the truth of the gospel must be protected. It must be protected according to God's plan against the insidious lies of false teachers. And there's a lot of them out there today. And they have a lot bigger platform and a lot better ways to communicate those lies. But how does God's plan protect the gospel? And, and what, what are we, what is our steps to help protect God's truth? Well, we can shield the church from wolves, from lies, by remembering two aspects. Two aspects of God's plan. The first one, and this is the first point if, you want to, if you're taking notes, faith expressed by lovingly teaching. And this is verses 1 through 5. Faith expressed by lovingly teaching others. Let me read those verses again for you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God and our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul, this salutation, Paul, it's pretty much in every letter that he writes in the New Testament. His, it, he introduces, and this is actually the form of a Greek letter, of a Latin letter. This is the way they did it. We write and we say, dear so-and-so, and we put our name at the bottom. They do it differently. They introduce themselves, they tell you who they're talking to, and then they go on and write the letter. So this is the proper form. And his salutation clearly denotes his position, his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy's position as well. And that is why they are in the places they are in. And I want you to notice that God is really our Savior. This is one of the few times you see anybody use this phrase, God our Savior, in the New Testament. It's all through the Old Testament. It's mentioned everywhere. So Paul's pulling something out of the Old Testament, being a Pharisee and knowing the Bible like, their Bible like he does. So God is our Savior because God's the one who sent Jesus, okay? So don't ever let that confuse you. God is our Savior, and he commanded Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his position, which is why he's writing this letter. And then Paul prays or wishes. It's, I, I don't like wishes because wishes are not, they're, it's just hoping, empty hope, um, he prays this over, over Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, you know what? In every letter, in his salutation, he always wishes or prays grace and peace. But for Timothy, in both Timothy letters, he adds mercy. And it's because Timothy's going to need it. Timothy's going to need mercy. He adds mercy to the greeting. 
Mercy was needed because Timothy was going to face the wolves. Why was he going to face the wolves? Well, I'm glad you asked. But mercy is being relieved or rescued from something harmful. Mercy, the worst case, is you're going to be punished for a crime. The cop's going to give you a ticket, but he decides not to. Something like that. That's mercy. Remember the kid's game of mercy where you grabbed your hands and you turned it and you tried to, and whoever won, the other one had to cry mercy. You let go of the hands. Maybe you don't remember that game. I don't know. Anyway, it was, it was up to the person that was winning to show mercy, to stop the pain. Well, that's what mercy is. And only from God and Jesus Christ would these three gifts, grace, mercy, and peace, help Timothy. Human grace, mercy, and peace does not help us at all. They fall short. So Paul then begins in verse 3. He says, after my first imprisonment, this is what happened. He traveled again, and he gave directions for Timothy to stay in Ephesus. Evidently, Timothy went there at some point, maybe during the imprisonment. Um, it doesn't indicate in any way, shape, or form that Paul ever went back to Ephesus since he told the elders they would never see him again. He probably was pressing on into new territory, Macedonia. And just so you know, Macedonia is like um, north of Greece now, where Macedonia would be considered. Matter of fact, there's a north Macedonia, Kosovo, a whole bunch of Bulgaria. But uh, Ephesus is down uh, in Turkey. So he's not close to, to, to Timothy when he writes this letter. But Timothy is a servant of Paul, and he went many places for Paul and with Paul. I mean, you go throughout the entire New Testament, Acts, the letters Paul writes, Timothy is all over the map. He's gone to Corinth, he's gone to Athens, he's, he's with Silas in a certain place, he's with Paul in a certain place. Timothy was dedicated to serving and helping Paul get the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ out. And that's a great thing. So what was the purpose for him staying in Ephesus? Well, Paul makes it very clear. Stop false teachers. Stop false teaching of wrong doctrines. And he had certain people in mind. I think Paul had some people's names in mind, but he didn't list them here. Now, later in chapter 1, he does mention a couple of guys that Paul had already taken care of. But here, I think he's thinking of somebody, but he doesn't want to put it in print. You know, he wants, wants Timothy to discern it. Timothy may even know. Paul's just keeping the names out of it in case they repent. You know, you don't want something permanently written for all the ages if, uh, if someone repents from it. You want it to kind of fade away and forgiveness to happen. And he didn't specify exactly what the false doctrines were. But it involved some arguments. It involved a lot of discussion over meaningless topics. Verse 4 talks about myths and genealogies and speculations. And this, these things come, at this time, um, these come from people trying to blend Jesus Christ with other religions or other ideas. They're trying to make Jesus fit into their mold. Whether it's a Jew trying to make people get circumcised because that's how you get saved, or whether it's the Gentiles and the Greeks who are trying to you know, square God, Jesus up with the Roman and Greek gods. You know, Roman mythology is just Greek mythology with different names, by the way. So they, they, they're trying to mix them together and speculating. You know what speculating is? Guessing. That's all speculating is. You know, sometimes it's, you have some education and it's information. But, but see, these people imagine a place where all these ideas can harmonize and work together. You, you hear that today somewhere? Jesus can't be the only way to heaven. There's other gods. There's all kinds of ways to get to God. Anyway, I'll get into that in a minute. 
They imagine a place where all these things can harmonize and they are just flat wrong. They can't harmonize. Jesus needs nothing from these other religions or ideas, ways of living. These types of blending, we call it, we have a word for it, believe it or not, uh, in the theology department, we have a word for it called syncretism. Syncretism. You can look it up and it pretty much talks about just blending religions. It basically means compromising points of belief so that you can get along with people, so that you can be more acceptable to people. That's what syncretism really is. And it is very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Many denominations have been born out of syncretism. Many church splits have happened over syncretism. Some of them justify it because, oh, it's, it makes us more diverse. You know, you know the Branch Davidians? That, that anniversary just came up this week. The anniversary of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. You know where they came from? They're an offshoot of an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists. Somewhere started around 1955 or something. Um, I don't think they expected it to end like it did in Waco. But, but Paul is retelling, and then Paul, he says, but here's what we need to do. He retells the plan of God for how we hold the line against false doctrines. We operate by faith. We operate by faith, not logic. Not logic. Not something that tries to square and make everything work together. We operate by faith, not blind faith. <laughs> not blind faith. We operate by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only source and path to God and eternal life. You know, every religion out there is trying to get to God. Every religion out there, that's, they're trying to get to some nirvana, some heaven, some God. That's what they're trying to do. Jesus is the only way. He is the foundation to our doctrines. He's the only foundation. You can't base it off of anything else. You can't let anything else compromise that. Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation to a holy, righteous God, that is the beginning. That's how we operate. You start, you start quibbling about that, and you're going to get drugged down. If you add or subtract anything to our faith in Jesus Christ for a means of salvation, we lose our footing, we lose our grip, and we lose what's right. We express that faith, and listen to this, we express that faith by teaching that the gospel is the only means by which a soul is saved. We operate by faith, and we, we, we express that faith by teaching people that it is the only means by which a soul can be saved. In verse 5, he, starts, he says it starts with faith, and then he says, Here's how you present the offensive gospel. And realize, the gospel is offensive. It is. Telling someone they're going to hell is offensive. Telling someone that they've got to, they can't make themselves right with God, that's offensive. Chuck Colson said that years ago. He said, it's an offensive thing. It's not meant to be sugar-coated. It's a fact. We can't make ourselves right with God. Love, though, is the goal. That's the goal of our teaching. He says, love is our goal of instructing, of teaching, of living and evangelizing. Love is the focus of telling others about the gospel. And, and let me tell you, love is really the only reason why anyone would tell someone they're going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. That's motivated by love. I know, I know the world has kind of tricked us on that and say, oh, you're not being loving when you say it. We can be. We may not say it in most loving tone, but the truth is, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, your eternal soul is, is damned to hell. Period. Dot. 
Love's the only reason anyone would tell another human being that they are a sinner before God. And telling someone that they can never be good enough to reach heaven without Jesus is kind of blunt. Frank. But it's honest. But we can do it a little differently. We can do it with some love, okay? Um, we don't have to be ugly about it. We don't have to be grumpy about it. Paul tells us how we express our faith in a lovingly way, teaching people and telling people love is guided by three specific traits right here in verse 5. First of all, a pure heart. A pure heart. Now, this is a heart that's not self-seeking. This is a heart that's not self-promoting. It's pure. It's focused only on Christ. It's focused only on doing and loving and looking for the gain of others, not yourself. A heart clean, a heart sanctified by the Holy Spirit from washing it with the word of God. It's got pure motives. That's a pure heart. We're not seeking our own agenda. So that's first. You got to have a pure heart. The second, a good conscience. A good conscience. Uh, a bad conscience is terrible, and I've seen a bad conscience. But a good conscience. A good conscience is aware of our own sin aware of the fact that we needed a Savior and always approaching everyone with the idea that I'm telling you something that I had to learn, that I needed, and I still need him. Aware of our own sin, it's a humble conscience. It's a penitent conscience. It seeks eternal life for others. That's why we're telling them about Jesus. That's why we're teaching them these things. Our own awareness of our continual need for a Savior Martin Luther was asked one time, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday to us? We already believe it. He says, because everybody needs the gospel every week, because we forget it. We sometimes get arrogant and, and self-confident. A good conscience doesn't do that. We have a need for a Savior, and it makes other, us love others uncondemningly, because we know we were condemned, and now we're not. We want to give them the same opportunity. So that's the second trait the third trait is a sincere faith in Jesus. A sincere faith in Jesus. No hypocrisy in our soul. We're not playing church. We're not playing Christian. We're, we're genuine toward others in, in their eternal state. We realize that we didn't do anything to earn our eternal reward. We realize it's all Jesus. So we trust him and we, we come with a sincere faith in that very fact. Truly believing that our eternal security resides in Jesus Christ alone. Our faith is sincere and we use it to help others. I want you to have the same faith I have. These three traits, they pour out a selfless love that we have, and we have that selfless love because we have been selflessly loved by Jesus Christ. We, we can't do these without him. We can't do these by ourselves. These three are from Christ because he was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could have the righteousness of God. And you know, none of these traits here make any sense without their adjectives. Heart, conscience, faith, it doesn't make any sense without their adjectives. Pure, good, sincere. Only by Jesus Christ can these adjectives actually happen where we can teach people in love and when we apply them to our own soul. Any of these things are impossible without God. And, and, the, and the love of God that sent his only son to die for humanity because we couldn't make ourselves right with God. And by the rege regeneration of our hearts, by our hearts being made from stone to flesh, we can express our faith lovingly to instruct others of what the truth is.
to, to not turn it into an argument, but to give them time to process it and believe it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. My grandmother used to say, catch more flies with honey than vinegar, right? Everybody remember that? Well, that's exactly what Paul's telling him. Remember, your goal of instruction is love with these three traits. It's easier to listen to truth presented by someone who you believe actually needed that truth. And they found it and they're passing it on to you. It's good news. It's great news. Someone who's actually done this, it's easier to listen to them. Loving instruction is the plan that God has put in place to correct the wrongs and errors of other people's teaching. I mean, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. I think he wrote from prison to the Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 15, he wrote about this very thing. He says, but speaking the truth in love. Some of us love to speak the truth, but we don't ever add that in love part to it sometimes. We're pretty harsh at times. Speaking the truth in love, let us, let us grow in every way and to him who is the head, Christ. See, the goal is to get them in Christ, to get them to growing and looking at Jesus Christ. But speaking the truth in love, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And if we're going to fight off the wolves in our church, we must execute the plan. We must teach and learn and express the love of God in our teaching. Christ is the head of the church. There's no doubt about that. And our instruction must honor him. Therefore, it must be loving. We see Jesus saying some pretty hard things to the Pharisees and labeling them sometimes. But they were obviously already resistant, belligerently resistant to his teaching, even though they had grown up reading all the prophets. They still decided, like I said last week, they still decided to crucify the Messiah. But Christ, his instruction was always loving. And wolves are always at the door trying to insert lies into the church. Satan sends his wolves, the lies, the falsehoods, the misinformation. He's trying to plant it in our minds. I mean, not literally at the door, but at the door of our mind. There's, there's wolves there, scratching and clawing at the door, trying to get in. We need to not let them. Matter of fact, last week, a popular pastor, I'm not going to name him, a popular pastor said, evolution is compatible with creation. As a matter of fact, he insisted that Christians should accept evolution as the only way creation could have happened. I think he forgot to read the fine print. Evolution is a theory. <laughs> that, my friends, is a wolf. Unfortunately, he's inside a large building with lots of people and satellites all over. It's sad. He is wrong on so many levels. There's a prominent denomination of churches out there, evangelical churches today, splitting over the LGBTQ plus issue. Some of the churches are okay with homosexual activity, homosexual marriages, and even homosexual pastors. And the other half is not. That is a wolf. They're not even in sheep's clothing. They're not even trying to hide. They're wolves. That is not just a false doctrine. It is just wrong. It totally disregards the inerrant word of God. Wolves are inside our churches. We, we, must, you know, we don't want to be skeptical of everybody, but, but wolves get inside our churches. Sometimes just the idea. Sometimes the wolves are not a person. 
they're an idea that's permeating, just like Paul mentioned these ideas and these myths and these speculations. People trying to get their way or insist on their wishes while disregarding the leadership. That's sometimes a wolf, depending on what it's, the issue is. Sometimes in churches, people who insist that we don't take God's word that seriously, that we don't treat it as if it's inerrant, that it's spoken by God himself, that's a wolf. There's some in the churches that want to live a sinful life and tell, tell you, oh, God's okay with this. You know, he, he's, he's given me okay with this, regardless of what the Bible says. That's a wolf. And, and you know what? Each and every one of these people deserve our love. We, we need to love them. Jesus did. Jesus ate with the Pharisees as well as the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. He loved them and then instructed them. We must love them with the truth. We don't have to be ugly about it. They deserve being taught their errors in a consistent, even-toned, loving way. We don't need to argue. You know, we don't need to fight. Debating doesn't usually help. Once they want to argue and get defensive, it's probably time to stop the conversation. But don't hesitate to start it because that may be where it goes. And don't hesitate to re-engage. It's easy. It's easy not to confront. Oh, it's real easy to sit here and go, I just don't want to get in a mess. I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want to upset anybody. It's easy not to love them and not to confront them. We can sit here in a condescending attitude that, well, they should know better. Maybe they don't. I told you that a, a, a young man in the Bible Belt, Alabama, didn't know who Jesus was except a cuss word. Never heard of Jesus. I thought he was kidding. I thought he was messing with me. No, he was, he was absolutely serious. Confront their errors, remembering the three traits, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which means we have to work at having those. We have to labor and fight for these. We don't need to fight with each other. We need to fight for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Without, without those, our discussion with the, the wolves will escalate. It'll get angry, fury, harm, because... And that's not good because remember, love is the goal. Use the three traits to love them and teach them because we operate by faith. We know God's got this. We don't have to prove our point. We don't have to argue them into heaven. We don't have to convince them. God will save. God will deal with them. We just present them the truth and let God take care of the rest. But we need to do it with the three traits. Remember Jesus told us that if we're going to approach somebody to take the log out of our eye before we talk about the speck in theirs? Well, these three traits are ways we go logging in our own eyes. The way we go and remove the logs, the lumber in our eyes is we work on these three traits before we go and we teach others. We'll never be perfect, but if we're striving for these, we can definitely make a difference and we can fend off the wolves. Our faith calls us to love the sinner and deal with the sin because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He loved us, the sinner, hated our sin, died for us, and redeemed us. So we need to <coughs> express our faith by lovingly teaching them. We need to fight the wolves off that way. And then we also, with the end result in mind, which is glorifying God. That's our second point this morning. God's glory exalted by living out the gospel. 
God's glory by exalted by gospel living, verses 6 through 11. Let me read this to you again. Paul says, some, going back to the teachers of the, of the false teachers and all, some have departed from these, these things he just mentioned. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel, according to concerning the gospel, concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to be to me. Paul turns now to these guys who have decided they know better. They've turned away from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They've turned away from those things. They've turned away from the goal of love, the plan of faith, and they've decided they know better. They know better than Paul. They know better than Timothy, and they know better than Jesus. Eventually, ultimately, they know better than God. They, they insist on fruitless debates, pointless dialogues, rambling monologues about what they believe and what they're hanging on to. I know it's hard to love these kind of people. Go back to point one, and, and it, the point's made. We need to learn how to love these people. In verse 7, he says, they desire to teach the law. They desire to teach the law, but their desire is misplaced because they really don't know what they're teaching. They really don't know what they're insisting on. So let me explain something to you about the law. When Paul uses that word, he's not talking about the ceremonial law with all the sacrifices and stuff. He's talking about the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And that's what, that's what this means. The law is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and their explanations, that's in Exodus chapter 20 and 21. You go read that. Moses got the Ten Commandments. He got the, the stuff that's on the tablet. And then he gets what God explains to him those can mean, you know, he gives them, he kind of elaborates on it. God elaborates on them. But with the law that's moral, it's easy to use that to tell people that's how you get to heaven, is you've got to obey that law perfectly. With rules and obligations, that's exactly what Jesus came to die for because that's what the Pharisees were doing to the Jews. But they fail to see that. These people think they've got a better way, which seems like a common thing I hear today. Oh, we know better. We know that evolution is the only way. Wow. Anyway, in verse 8, Paul reminds Timothy that the, that, and the true believers that are there in the church that the law is good. It's not bad. The law is very good. The 10 that he's talking about here, when it's used correctly, when it's used legitimately, he says, when it's used to point out and bring conviction of a sin to a soul so as they come to Jesus Christ for his salvation. That's what the law is for. You, did, you didn't know what sin was until you read the law, right? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. I didn't know what coveting was. And then when I learned what coveting was, I coveted. Or I realized I was coveting. It's, the law is good to illuminate a soul's awareness of wrong. Wrong standing with God. Okay? So that's what the law is good for. That's what it's used for. And in verse 9, he says, the law no longer helps a righteous person, person, one who's bought by the blood of the lamb. It doesn't help us in the sense that making us righteous, who are made righteous by the blood of the lamb. 
That's how we're made righteous. But it does guide us, gives us certain ways to behave. But the Holy Spirit uses even those 10 to illuminate in our hearts things that, oh my goodness, is that a problem? There's a lot of ways we break the Ten Commandments that, you know, Jesus just gave two when he preached in the Sermon on the Mount just to give them an example. If you're angry with somebody, it's like murder. If you lust after a woman, you're having sex with her. It's adultery. So that you take those two and you go over the whole Ten Commandments and you, and you go to uh, Exodus 21 and you can see there's a lot of ways we could break the Ten Commandments. So they guide us. They help us live even better. But using the law as a means of salvation, as a way to become saved, that is what they're trying to do, and it doesn't make anyone righteous. And then Paul begins a list. There's many lists of sin in the New Testament, and Paul has several of them. This one, this one really walks right along the Ten Commandments. And so he makes a list of the violations that break God's moral law. First of all, he says, lawless and rebellious. Well, that's commandment number one. Those who spurn God and choose to be their own God. The ungodly and sinful. That's idol worship with no regard for right living. That's number two. Unholy and irreverent. That's not honoring God by our words, our mouth, and also well by our rest, by the Sabbath day, by giving him the proper worship. Killing parents. Not honoring your father or mother. Violence against your parents was forbidden. Still is. Murder. Number six, killing someone with malice and hatred. Number seven, sexually immoral and homosexuals. That's breaking the, the design God created for intimacy between a man and a woman inside the bounds of marriage. It, 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 it all violates that. Slave traders. I think this is one of the few places that's actually mentioned like that in uh, Slave traders, stealing and kidnapping humans. And that was a big thing back in Paul's day. Well, it's a big thing today. I support an international justice mission. They help get slaves and people that have been illegally captured or, or kidnapped. It's violating someone's freedom, which is number eight. Liars and perjurers. Deceit. Deceit for the purpose of gaining advantage. Falsehood. Purging yourself on a, on, a, on a witness stand so that you can gain an advantage or protect someone or whatever. That's number nine. Now, there's one missing. Number ten. Number ten is coveting. Paul doesn't cover it here. No explanation as to why, but he does other places. But you know what? A lot of the sins that we just talked about usually result from the fact that we are coveting. Usually result from the fact that we're, we're motivated by coveting. We want someone else's possessions. We want someone else's position. We want someone else's person. We want to be where they are. And that usually leads us to break the other nine. How many times? So, but he also sums it up here. He says, Paul covers other crimes by reminding us that the gospel costs God a lot. The gospel costs God a whole lot. So make sure you're teaching and living in accordance with that. It costs God his son's life. So we need to use the gospel to govern our life. And by that act, by Jesus dying on a cross, God's glory is revealed. God so loved humanity that to make us right with him, he let his son die for us.
God's glory is best displayed and exalted by how we live out the truth of the, what the gospel did for us. God's glory is best expressed when we exalt him by living out what the gospel did for us, by telling people, showing people. Paul wants Timothy to remind the church, by the way, that's us too, he wants Timothy to remind the church that our salvation, our eternal life, must now manifest God, lift God up, exalt God for his glory. Because it's the reason God did it. He loved us, but he did it to glorify himself. Not in an egotistical, narcissistic way. No, God's not that. But when God receives glory, man, the world is a better place. Intentional, deliberate sinning, practicing sinful acts tells the world that God's grace is cheap and easy. It didn't really, doesn't really matter. You're once saved, always saved. Live like you want to live. That's not bringing glory to God, and that's not living out the gospel the way it's designed to be lived out. Paul was saved and entrusted with the gospel message, and we're going to read some more about that and talk about that next week. His testimony is that he was saved and entrusted with the message of the gospel, which brings glory to God because his son, Jesus Christ, died for us. It needs to show God's glory. <laughs> Illustration that I thought of yesterday, living out the gospel for the glory of God should be a lot like my daughter's rod and wheel, reel, fishing rod and reel when she was a little girl. I mean, she loved to fish. It was all about that long. It was one of those Zebco things. And, and she loved to fish. And she, when she learned how to cast at five, six or whatever, she wore that thing out. One day, it was just, the handle was just spinning and not reeling in the line. I opened up the case. All the sprockets on the gears were gone. They're metal. That's how many times she cast and, and reeled in and cast and reeled in. She was persistent in fishing. And, and we need to wear out gospel living like that we need to wear it out it won't wear out but we need to try we need to live like every moment is a gospel opportunity to glorify god i mean she used that reel till it couldn't be used anymore so we bought her another one our life and she only did it in my in-laws pond so it was only like a few times a year that she actually got to fish but she was there but this is what jesus said this is, this is in the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew 5. And this is what he tells us about how to live out the gospel. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way. So Jesus just gave you examples like the rod and reel but better. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We need to be living for God, glorifying Him, not ourselves. We need to be lifting Him up. So how do you give glory to God? That's a question for you to, to ponder on this week. What actions do you take to bring glory to God? If it doesn't include obedience by faith, then it doesn't. It doesn't bring glory to God. You are not glorifying God if you are not obeying God. You're not obeying God to be saved, okay? You're obeying God because he did save you. 
Bible study does not bring glory to God. It might bring glory to you if you get proud of it. You're proud that you study the Bible and know where all the references are. Obedience helps us know God, not just know about God. Prayer doesn't bring glory to God unless you mean it and do it consistently to Him. Talking with and to God, not just about God. Not just talking at God. So many times my prayers are like, I'm just rattling off stuff at God and say, okay, you got the list, God? Good, I'm gone. We need to be talking with him, communicating. Church attendance doesn't bring glory to God unless you come to worship him and him alone. Not coming to be seen, not coming to be you know, patted on the back necessarily. Obviously, fellowship's important, but showing up is just not worship. Involved in the singing, the praying, the listening, that's worship. And we need to get better at it. Obedience from your heart with sincere desires to please him, that brings glory to God. Because Jesus also said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did not, we not heal the sick? They're going to have a long list of things they did in the name of Jesus, but not for the name of Jesus. He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So, here's some things you can think about. When we use our salvation and our freedom in Jesus Christ to tell the world about him, God gets glorified. He gets glorified. When people come to us because they know, they know we care about their spiritual condition, God gets glorified. When we reach out to the hurting, the lost, the lonely with a comforting hand, and Jesus, faith in Jesus, God gets glorified. You want to keep the wolves away from your church, from your family, from your own heart? Make sure God is glorified. Lift Jesus up. And when God inhabits your life completely and people see him, the enemy cannot stay. The enemy runs away. The wolves will leave. For a time, they'll be back if you're not careful. We want to fight off the wolves. Kind of summary for this, what I've talked about this morning. Paul starts a letter to, Phil, to, to Timothy, I mean, with a reminder of how to keep the false and hypocritical liars away by teaching with truth, I mean, teaching truth with love and glorifying God with our obedience. But there's one final thought that we all have to wrestle with. This passage begs us to ask a question of our own hearts. Are we a wolf? Are we bringing in things to the church, to our families, to whatever? Are we a wolf? Are we misleading others by our loveless and faithless living? Has our loveless and faith and our godless demeanor hurt the church? You can, we can remedy that because God's a gracious God. So let's pray this morning in our pastoral prayer time. Let's pray for God to inspect our hearts, to show us where we need some cleaning, and then find the grace of Jesus Christ to forgive and to heal. We're going to take some time to pray right now, and um, if you want to come to the front and pray, that's fine. But let's have a time of silent prayer over these things.